South Africa is in many ways pretty similar to Brazil and it, it represents sort of vanguard of, of what's happening is that, um, you know, basically as the state fails to provide basic services, various forms of competing private interests, which are in very way antithetical to any mass political subject emerge, uh, adopting a hodgepodge of different things competing over the scraps. And this goes from like, you know, uh, vigilante movements to private security, to the bizarre spectacle of, you know, academics and intellectuals who made their name as, you know, like preaching for or whatever, being hired by the Guptas to spread propaganda. Or like, you know, Bell Pottinger driving racial tensions in South Africa. Hello, welcome to BungaCast. It's Friday the 20th of May as we're recording this. I'm Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, Philip Cunliffe is in... Uh, where are you, Phil? Hello. I'm in Canterbury in England, as you know. Uh, well, you, you might have been. You might have been somewhere else in a nearby town or city. Um, George, you're in a nearby city. You're in London, right? I'm actually not. No, I'm in Cornwall or Kernow, as they, as they say down here. They so, don't yeah. say that, George. No one says that. Petty bourgeois Cornish nationalism, nobody says that. Like 200 people speak Cornish. Nobody says Cornell. Everyone says Cornwall. Well, I beg to differ. I've, mm. I've seen a number Kurnow? of I've seen a number of bumper stickers with the black and oh, white flag saying Kernow. I mean, I don't say Kernow, but um, yeah, so I'm in the southwest of England. I mean, is this one of the consequences from. of Brexit that not just, uh, you know, a united Ireland and an independent Scotland, but an independent Yes, Kernow. an independent Cornwall. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely going to happen. Mm, good. Um, they should uh, nationalize whatever they produce there, coal and pasties, I guess. I don't even know if they do coal <laughs> they anymore. They don't produce coal there. They produce tin. Oh, oh tin. they, they right. did. Oh, they did. And they actually... Actually, the two are connected because the pasty for our non-English uh, listeners was a, is a pastry with a, a kind of a handle that you hold when your hands are all gacky from your tin mining. And then you eat it and it's got delicious potatoes and, and mints and all, all sorts of things. It's very tasty and, and healthy. Well, not that's, healthy, but that's the most gammon healthy. thing you've ever said, George. I feel like ill thinking about pasties now. Just thinking it, about it's it. basically a bad empanada. But anyway, um, we're here not to talk about Cornwall, but uh, somewhere else about South Africa. Say Cornwall. Cornwall. That's true. Yeah. Don't say American, man. Come on. You've lived in Britain. Cornwall. Come on, say it properly. Cornwall. Oh, God. Yeah. It's fine, whatever. Anyway, you're a gringo deep down. We we're all we're going to South Africa now, which is also a terrible even accent that, was there that I tried to terrible. do. Terrible. That was terrible. Yeah. Um, and we are talking to uh, Ben Fogel, who uh, longer time listeners of this podcast will know is uh, he was frequently on as part of the podcast uh, and is a uh, finishing up his PhD in history, is South African himself and studies. Uh, Latin American history and the history of corruption. Uh, and he's also kind of interested in crime and things like that, which is very apposite because you will hear now hear me talking to Ben about basically South Africa's mafia state, about how its sovereignty is collapsing uh, in the absence of any real political contestation and how kind of various private networks, often criminal, have uh, filled the void. Anyway, all very interesting stuff. Here's me talking to Ben now, and we'll, we'll be back for a brief after party at the end of that. All right. Uh, very happy to be talking with Ben, who's uh, in New York. I'm here in Sao Paulo. How's it going, Ben? It's going uh, okay. And yourself, you know, just in between uh, inflation crises, the end of reproductive rights, 
moral panics and the general uh, end of history, uh, depravity of a uh, liberal class trying to make sense of the world. It's going okay. Yeah, no, the good, good. Um, we're going to talk about sunnier subjects like South Africa. Um, so I, I was going to start off by making a really dumb point, but I think for listeners, it's uh, it's worth making because then Ben can correct me. But uh, I, I think I feel like South Africa is a very Gen X sort of thing, right? So South Africa for Gen X, you know, who had generally kind of pulled away from politics or lost hope in socialism or social transformation, South Africa was a kind of new form of left liberal post-socialist hope. It was kind of the third world rising um, in a kind of rainbow coalition, post-racial, but you can still see elements of that today in today's politics. But, you know, South Africa doesn't really represent this icon of hope for certainly for millennials and definitely not for Gen Z. Um, So anyway, I just wanted to kind of put that in context. South Africa really did represent uh, some hope, at least for, you know, certainly for Britain um, across much of the West and, and to a certain extent in the US, don't you think? Well, I mean, I would say uh, in terms of we talk about what they refer to as the third wave of democratization, the sort of end of, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, the spread of democracy to former uh, autocracies and authoritarian states in Latin America, really the apex, the extreme achievement of this moment was uh, South Africa's relatively peaceful transition to democracy in 1994 and to uh, majority rule. And I, I think it's even more, I mean, uh, part of the Gen X appeal is like South Africa is always 10 years behind. So it has like sort of nostalgic vibes, but like it's more than just like I would describe the sort of rainbow post-racial. It also for the left would mark a big achievement in that finally this brutal racist regime has been defeated and you have a uh, national libera- liberation movement. Actually, the ANC is the oldest national liberation movement in Africa come to power backed by the Communist Party and one of the strongest and most militant trade union movements in the world. It was also offered a hope not just for those who wanted, you know, the Mandela fairy tale stuff, but also those who thought that, you know, this would be a model of progressive governance and social change in one of the most unequal and racially defined uh, societies in the world. Yeah, right. So it obviously, you know, I don't think any of our listeners would buy into the idea that, you know, South Africa is just a basket case and, you know, what's interesting to discuss about it, but it obviously uh, has undergone a pretty stark decline or crumbling, um, which we're going to get into. Um, But maybe just uh, to set us up, can you tell us, just give us a little bit of a potted history since 1994 to where we are today? Yeah. I mean, I think first things first, uh, and this is something which is actually relatively not discussed openly in South Africa. It wasn't really clearly communicated when I was in university or when I was in high school. And I think it's uh, fair to assert there's sort of been a failure to transmit the stakes to a generation or people don't really know the details uh, outside of South Africa is that South Africa, far from having a peaceful transition, uh, was really wrecked by political violence from the 1980s to the 1990s. So, um, and this wasn't just, you know, like classic, uh, you know, state counterinsurgency of, you know, running black ops and disappearing people which, and torturing people. Well, that certainly was happening. It was also a sort of like contra violence in that uh, state apartheid state sponsored a the Zulu Nationalist Party, the IFP, to uh, effectively mount a armed insurgency centering particularly in KwaZulu-Natal 
uh, and uh, parts of Gauteng now, which was in the Transvaal, which is the two most key economic areas, but also which have a uh, strong Zulu presence, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal. So, and, so just, just uh, for this, for, just for listeners' sake, this would be the like KwaZulu-Natal is the area, the province around Durban, and then yes, yeah. um, and then Gauteng is the area around Johannesburg, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and you know, this violence killed something around thirty thousand people, and it was basically armed militias with some police support, often learning the blind eye or blind eye or armed supply from the state, going into trade union communities, ANC supporting communities, and killing a lot of people. And at the same time, the ANC would respond in, by arming itself or when the UDF, which was the United Democratic Front, the mass front against apartheid before the ANC was uh, made legal again, there were sort of criminal elements that armed in response and conducted operations. So it was quite bloody. I would argue that the violence was driven by the reactionaries of the Nationalist Project and backed by the apartheid state, as well as, you know, things like, uh, we had, you know, a part rogue apartheid police working with the, uh, you know, fascist far Africana right to conduct terrorist campaigns to sabotage peace negotiations. There was a lot going on. There was a big worry that sections of the military and the police would, uh, you know, sabotage the peace negotiations. You had cops going in blackface onto trains and just shooting it up. Then you also had uh, the fact that the apartheid state had been sponsoring a civil war in Mozambique, which killed half a million people its involvement in Angola in the 80s before it was defeated by the Cubans. So there was a lot of violence. So the worry was in 1994 that uh, effectively a form of civil war would erupt as factions of the apartheid state would refuse negotiations backed by the Zulu nationalists and uh, you know these far-right organizations. And that would lead to like open warfare of a type that you hadn't really seen with the ANC. Now, um, there were real worries because there's lots of people being killed at this time uh was particularly following the murder of chris harney who was the probably the second most popular politician after mandela in about 94 he was a uh the leader of the communist party at the time one of the most uh you know heroic uh figures in the south african liberation struggle so this happens and uh despite all of this we end up having a peaceful election and transfer of power so in 1994, when you, the ANC didn't rule outright, they opted to have a government of national unity, uh, which included elements of Inkata and the National Party, the Party of Apartheid. This collapses in 99, pretty quickly by 1996, and the ANC rules outright. Now, after having come to power on a you know redistributive platform, promising to do like social democracy, you know South Africa and inequality, we are the world champions in that you know, a sort of basic development redistributed project. The ANC turned face and they uh, adopt a neoliberal policy package called Gear 96 against the wishes of the Communist Party and trade unions. And you have this sort of period of, uh, you know, privatizations and issues up to 1999. So 1999, you have Mandela leaves power is replaced by Tabo Mbeki, who's his deputy, who's kind of got a, his own vision He's an intellectual known for smoking a uh, pipe and recording Shakespeare. And he sort of launches his own vision. So, but South Africa's economy is not, still not growing properly at this point. We've just come out of like a terrible economic uh, challenges of low growth, high unemployment. But by the early 2000s, the economy starts growing again. We reach about 6% growth. Uh, the ANC promotes uh, policies which create a 
um, black middle class, expanding black professionals. There's, you know, expansion of social rights, you know, electricity, uh, you know, uh, roads and public housing, even if though uh, countries still plagued by high crime and uh, inequality is still, you know, a fact. But at the same time, these were the positive years. We also had the fact that the South Africa was being rav ravished by one of the worst HIV uh, pandemics in the world, and the state was uh, effectively adopted a denialist position. It took uh, mass mobilization driven by um, a movement called the TAC, the Treatment Action Campaign, which eventually allied with the trade unions and the Communist Party to basically deliver uh, antiretroviral drugs to the masses. And despite his denialism, he's that this campaign is successful, but this weakens Tabo. And Tabo is also being weakened by a few other things. One, these corrupt, corruption scandals are starting to emerge. The ANC is protecting its own. There's a bunch of people who've gone to business. People are, the signs that there's something going wrong are there. And at the same time, um, you know, the left of the ANC is really upset about these neoliberal policies. But at the same time, like, you know, Tabo Mubeki is adopting an interesting stance. He's talking about an African Renaissance, a new model for development and Pan-Africanism. He's articulating a positive vision. But at the same time, so there aren't really, like sorry to jump in, but the, so there aren't really kind of any open political or even factional conflicts at this time. I mean, it's pretty okay. strongly behind the ANC at that time, right? Well, I mean, basically the ANC is the majority party. It's got two thirds majority, but there's a strong conflict which emerges about 2004, 2005 after this AIDS crisis, which is what happens is the deputy president, Jacob Zuma, who's a former intelligence head of the ANC in exile, had done time in Robben Island, uh, as opposed to Thabo, who had been uh, in exile. He had lived in uh, you know, the UK, studied at Sussex, um, basically was removed from his position because he was involved in the 1999 arms deal, which was a, a major billion dollar arms purchase where basically the whole ruling guard of the ANC were bribed by uh, European uh, and British uh, defense firms. So he's kicked out for corruption and uh, also facing a rape trial where he allegedly raped the daughter of his comrade. Um, but basically this results in a coalition of the wounded as it's called in which Jacob Zuma adopts a populist, uh, ethno-nationalist, 100% Zulu boy, I'm being targeted because I'm Zulu, but also I'm gonna be the man of the people against the sort of uh, elitist Thabo Mbeki figure and you know, be a vehicle for those opposed to neoliberalism. And this political battle becomes to define the country. So behind Zuma, the aggrieved parts of the left in the ANC, which includes Kasatu, the largest trade union federation, and the South African Communist Party, as well as Zulu nationalists and people opposed to Tabamabeki, group behind him, which results in what they call the Zunami, which is a victory at the 2007 Polokwane ANC National Congress, in which Zuma becomes the president of the ANC. Then they remove Tabamabeki from power, and he's replaced with the deputy president, and then Zuma is uh, elected as president of the country in 2009. Now, he was elected promising to end neoliberalism in South Africa, promote a pro-worker, more redistributive populist uh, project, as well as you know, uh, mixing elements of ethno-nationalism. The Thabo Mbeki sort of neoliberal faction of the ANC, if you would like to call it that. Some leave the ANC, some are purged. 
there is factional strife, but Zuma still emerges triumphant. But from 2009 to 2012, what is very clear is that the state adopts a different, more developmental approach, spends billions on infrastructure projects, almost all, and particularly in the lead up to the World Cup, but almost all of them from ports to ma massive power stations turn out to be duds, we'll get into that later. But by 2012, it's clear that Zuma is not governing from the left. He is doing something different. And this is the culmination is the 2012 uh, Marikana massacre where the state guns down striking mine workers in the platinum belt. And something is clear that emerges is wrong. So from 2012 to 2014, the trade union movement splits, the opposition to Zuma, who is now implicated in very serious corruption scandals is growing and this culminates in this discovery that effectively South Africa had a shadow government in which Zuma was allied to this Indian business family called the Guptas and was ruling basically for a looting what we call state capture a parasitic project corruption which spread through all levels of society in ANC yeah, no, and I may, uh, listeners can check out an episode that we did, uh, and Ben was involved in that as well, um, as well as Sean Jacobs, editor of Africa's a Country, back in, it was four years ago, uh, episode 27, uh, where we discussed uh, what would happen after Jacob Zuma, and we captured a lot of the specific history around Zuma then. So um, worth checking that out if you want more, kind of a little bit more detail on exactly um, what happened with Zuma and the transition to Ramaphosa. Um, but... To kind of continue on the story, jumping over maybe a little bit of the specifics of, of the Zuma state capture, um, you know, in, in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, so then Ramaphosa comes in, Zuma is deposed. Um, what do things look like after Zuma, um, which seem to at least seem be a bit of a relief from this overwhelming corruption and state capture under the Guptas? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to skip a bit. So basically, uh, as I mentioned before, the left supported Zuma in the ANC to the point where they really destroyed their own movements until, but in 2016, 2017, there's sort of like a mass movement that starts emerging. It was seen as mostly middle class and backed by big capital uh, against Zuma. But then eventually the workers decide to go in the streets too against Zuma. So there's like a Zuma's fall. He's, you know, doing away with the country. So it's a sort of a revisionist narrative that the left, that the workers were against this, but no, the workers definitely supported this. So Zuma is defeated in 2017. He wasn't defeated directly. His uh, ex-wife was his sort of supported candidate, lost out in the ANC elective conference to Sora Ramaphosa, and then Zuma is forced out of office in 2018 and replaced by the deputy president then, which was Sora Ramaphosa. So Ramaphosa comes in with uh, the support of big capital, with most of the ANC and what's left of the trade union movements in the Communist Party even. He is a um, former trade union leader, former ANC leader who had led the negotiations to end apartheid, turned billionaire, uh, among and other he, things. And he's kind of like, he's a guy who wants to kind of clean up politics, but he's kind of an anti-corruption sort of candidate. Yeah, it's also promising a social compact, like, you know, like, you know, everyone's on the same side development. I think he's also the ex-head of uh, the McDonald's franchise in South Africa. But anyway, he comes in promising a cleanup and people after the, the other thing is worth mentioning, the ANC had been losing votes in every election. So that's one of the reasons they wanted Zuma out. So he comes in and in 2019, he's elected as president with a fairly decent majority, even though the ANC still bled some votes. 
but people have hopes, but you know, there's the scandals, the state dysfunction and everything from like regular power cut blackouts to, you know, the collapse of basic infrastructure continues. Then there's COVID that hits South Africa, uh, introduced a very authoritarian uh, lockdown process and, uh, you know, reacts very heavily. There's sort of, and then uh, just basically, you know, 330,000 uh, excess deaths, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but basically to cut things short, uh, there was a local election last year and the ANC slipped to its lowest ever share of the vote on the verge of losing uh, its, you know, getting 50% of the vote for the first time. And people, there seems to be like, the ANC with all its promises of reform has been hit by uh, corruption scandal after corruption scandal. Almost all qualities of life have declined and there's sort of like stasis there. So like the Ramaphosa project for all its promises hasn't delivered much. And so the picture of South Africa now in 2022 and really over the past kind of two, three years seems to be, and like, I mean, you send me links and tell me kind of what's going on there. I mean, is a significant amount of violence and not just criminal violence, but you will have, for example, like anti-immigrant violence, mm-hmm. some nationalist violence, various forms of vigilantism and, and a kind of breakdown, it seems to me, of state sovereignty such that local power groups fill the vacuum. So you have like, I mean, maybe you can tell us a little bit, you know, kind of residence associations and taxi companies, which are effectively their own sorts of mafias or protection rackets and are able to mobilize mobs to target um, certain groups. Um, and then linked to all that, you have the the sort of uh, Zuma faction, which is organizing its own sort of violence. So maybe you can talk us through, firstly, the general picture and then the specific picture in relation to what's going on in KwaZulu-Natal with the, the sort of Zuma faction. Yeah, so, I mean, South Africa is in a real mess. So uh, effectively, um, we've been in an economic, you know, decline for basically a decade now. South Africa is poorer per capita than it was a decade ago, which it's gone basically from an upper middle income to a middle income country. Mm. It's an extraordinary slide, especially considering, you know, all the industrial base. Uh, almost by every measure of life, things are worse. I mean, uh Unemployment, according to the expanded definition, is 46%, which is, you know, that's social crisis, a social breakdown. Uh, I mean, among youth, I mean, uh, you know, basically working class black youth, it's about 70%. Yeah, that's no, which is just in- incredible, yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, um, the basic infrastructure of the country's collapsed, the train network due to uh, theft, mismanagement, uh, um, parasitic form of corruption, as we come back to later, and organized sabotage campaigns has basically collapsed. Um, you know, the hundreds of carriages were, bur- were burnt in an arson campaign. Not really any idea about what exactly was behind it in terms of prosecutions. Um, you know, the, uh, the country goes through periodic blackouts due to uh, the grid not having the basic periodic breakdowns in, the, in our power system, which was something which was warned about in the 2000s. And, you know, when they finally did invest all this money in expanding our uh, power capacity, thanks in large part to the Guptas, it ended up being like basically white elephants, which aren't built properly and can't be, can't be run mm. while billions of dollars were, you know, siphoned off. So you have a bad, uh, you basically have a basic infrastructure from electricity to transportation falling apart in large parts of the country, including in major cities, 
access to water is falling apart. Uh, no services aren't maintained. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty dire out there. Then expanded with this, you also have, um, you know, for lot, basically viewed this way, the ANC created a series of patronage machines within its party to use uh, under the guise of uh, its tender system, but particularly uh, focusing on an element of creating sort of a black bourgeoisie, uh, which was politically connected, uh, um, a system of uh, contracts in which effectively politically connected middlemen reap billions, but no services are delivered, and it's all kickbacks coming into the same people. And, and that, that sort of pro- and that sort of process has been uh, in place since the ANC took power. Or is this something that happened over the course of the last twenty sort of years? Well, since the ANC took power, I mean, uh, I don't want to go into it now, but the apartheid state had its own version of this project, which is a little right. bit different. But like, um, but effectively. You have this, and then um, so what you have is as these basically this you have a, I mean I think it's curious um, you know sociology of elites in which there's a view that the state had sort of infinite resources it didn't matter if we didn't deliver even if we stole so you the if in other words the amount of funds due to economic crisis is not the same anymore as it once was so what's happened is these sort of parasitic factions which have emerged around the state uh, have no longer had the same access to public funds. And have been trying to maneuver into on the private sector, as mm-hmm. the, the police also have collapsed. If that hasn't uh, been apparent, uh, so you have this sort of attempt to muscle in in various different ways. And because the state's authority has collapsed, particularly in lockdown, so the effects of South Africa's lockdown restrictions, which include everything from banning rotisserie chicken to crop tops and uh, various cigarette <laughs> and liquor bans. Wow! Yeah. Uh, and you know, like I'm sure you missed out when you were there on on the crop tops in particular. I mean, the rotisserie chicken. You know. <laughs> it's a good combination, the rotisserie chicken and the crop top. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, basically, there was described in quite one report, but nothing less of an effect of um, as a civil war. And I wouldn't underestimate the social breakdown that's been a, an effect from this. So effectively, there was very little state support for. Uh, you know, the South African working class was eventually a $20 per month, £18 per month uh, emergency grant that was uh, allocated, but didn't reach enough people. And they made it hard to realize there was all the money set aside to provide support for, uh, you know, capital and small businesses didn't really make it, wasn't really, was fictitious almost. It was supposedly bank uh, backed loans, but didn't make it to anyone. So the restaurant, the average store was given no support and shut down. Basically, the, the like, uh, and you know, what is already a bad crisis got worse. And then you can imagine also how you're supposed to lock people at home who are living in like townships, you know, like mm. shanty towns, tin shacks, you're asking them to spend all day in home. It's just a, and you know, and then people saw all these, the fact that then all the COVID purchases seemed tainted by corruption, according to the, Parliament Special Investigative Unit, about 70% of COVID-related contracts are tainted or irregular. The health minister was pushed out because he used the marketing campaign for COVID stuff to benefit himself and his family. And like, you know, this is a real sort of social uh, failure. And it emerges, and we can get into the mafia stuff a bit more specifically later, but like effectively, with the absence of the a leadership or a national project because the opposition is relatively weak still, despite the fact that, uh, you know, the ANC is not doing very well. Um, various forms from the evangelical churches to vigilante groups 
to mafias, some with a social base, uh, have emerged to effectively occupy the space, channel discontent, muscle in as we enter this territory. And it's uh, so, dangerous. So it seems like more like a kind of free for all. I mean, they don't seem to, or, you know, it's not uh, kind of these organizations at a local level, whether it, as you say, like charismatic churches or, you know, taxi group who are trying to provide some sort of order at, at a general level, right? I mean, it's much more, um, I don't want to say factional, but I mean, it's just looking after their, their own interests and kind of self-forming groups, right? And, yeah. and as you say, it's not only... Um, trying to extract sort of patronage from the state because maybe that, that that kind of tap has dried up, but trying to do that to extracting from other actors in civil society, right? From other businesses and so on. Yeah, so I think this probably brings us a good way to describe what is called the radical economic transformation, which is effectively yeah. the tagline we refer to the prosumer faction of the ANC. Now, for those who don't know, the terminology and discourse articulated and used by, I mean, something very academic, basically they're fucking slogans of uh, RET uh, date back to a very curious coincidence. Uh, what happened was uh, when they were being smashed and the media scandal after scandal, the um, Gupta family and the Zoomers got together and hired uh, Bell Pottinger, which is a, was, was, I think it's now demise, thank God, a London PR for, firm started by Lord Bell, who among other things was uh, Thatcher's favorite PR guru. And she deployed mm. him to help Pinochet clean up his image in the eighties too, among other things. So anyway, they got employed to clean up Zuma and uh, the Gupta's image. And what they came up with was taking what is really a real thing in South African society. It's a social fact. South Africa remains incredibly unequal. The white South Africans, and to an extent, uh, now Indian South Africans as well, are much better off than um, the average black South African. And, you know, there is a racial division of wealth, even if the, uh, we can get to labor, the ruling class isn't necessarily white. Uh, and, you know, there is a historic legacy of racism and uh, racial exploitation, which has not been rectified. So what they did is they said all the corruption project, which was being called state capture in the media, was in fact a form of radical economic transformation uh, of you know, redistributive policies to benefit black people and you know, make black people in control of the economy. So there's a very big uh, sort of like mystification between black ownership, private sector, or the black majority wanting things like land. Reform. Yeah, th so this, sounds, was th this sounds like something that and would be at like at an ideological level popular with the Anglo left today, at least kind of the Anglo woke oh, man, left, which seems to be most of it. It's like decolonize, black empowerment, supposed economic equality. But um, yeah, in, in reality, it's uh, just, a yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, to an extent, uh, I've seen people like buy it hook, line and sinker in the, outside of South Africa. But like, again, so we get that. And then on the other side, white monopoly capital, which is the Stellenbosch backed by London, the Africana elites who support Cyril Ramaphosa and, you know, have, you know, never given the land back. And uh, they're just using corruption accusations to undermine the black majority. So this terminology, which again takes a social fact and then is promoted by, uh, you know, cynical, uh, you know, gringo London spin doctors, and as well as, uh, you know, ideological parts of the academy, and the trade union movement, um, and even to an extent employees through other ways, a lot of the sort of trendy ID poll and decolonization discourse that was emerging 
at the time uh, in the US and elsewhere. And it comes to this hodgepodge and effectively managed, provides this narrative for what this parasitic form corruption stands for. Now, who's in the Zuma side? So RET, which really is like the name of the forces given to Zuma after he's removed from power, is not, it does have a social base, but it's not, I would say like a single entity. It's more of a set of aligned interests that group together for shared goals, which is ensuring the legal system doesn't get them. They still have continued access to their rackets. And this includes everyone from like traditional leaders, you know, African chiefs, uh, evangelical churches, uh, mafia associations, like taxi associations or cigarette ba as, um, trafficking barons, uh, you know, uh, Zulu nationalist politicians, uh, elements of trade union movement who have, you know, just turned their unions into racketeering schemes, uh, as well as aggrieved local ANC mafia machines. So they all on one side, on the other side, you have what we call the you know, reform faction, of the ANC, the Ramaphosa faction, which, you know, again, has the backing of elements of big capital, uh, you know, elements of other things, but also includes a lot of people implicated in all sorts of dodgy things. Now, um, so RET mobilizes, and it has, you know, this sort of grassroots quality from xenophobia that they promote to, you know, demand for transformation, which, you know, performs access for like grassroots groups as well. Uh, but also its mobilizations are very heavily linked to something else that happened during the Zuma period was effectively the, um, you know, state security sector uh, was turned into a sort of private uh, unaccountable militia for Zuma, which they gutted the court system, went missing with billions, sold guns to everyone, you know, basically had their own private things. We've got like a bunch of missing state security agents, which have never been accounted for or high up policemen doing God knows what. So what we really saw is um, a lot of these revelations about what was going on during this period came to the fore um, during what was called the Zondu Commission to State Capture, which was the now Chief Justice of South Africa launching a commission. We love our commissions in South Africa uh, into what went wrong. And, you know, a lot of things about, you know, all sorts of sordid corruption came out from uh, members of parliament being bribed with a bribe pack, which is, you know, like a bunch of meat for barbecue to, you know, uh, billions of dollars meant to, I mean, hundreds of millions of do dollars meant to benefit like poor black farmers being fleeced, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, so this comes in and Zuma uses what we call Stalingrad legal tactics, which is any excuse to avoid accountability in court, but he refuses to turn up when he's uh, to the Zonda Commission and he's uh, indicted for um, contempt of court. So then he holds up in his compound, which is, you know, built with taxpayer money in the Nkantla and KZN, which is, um, you know, one of the big symbols of uh, state capture, infamously. Uh, he said the swimming pool was a fire pool, which is meant to protect him from in case of fire. And they <laughs> filmed a video of firemen to an operatic soundtrack uh, running to the pool to try to get water to, to spray on the thatch roof. And that was done in Parliament, yeah. so it got classical. So anyway, so he's holed up there. There's a standoff with the police. There's a bunch of militias and like armed men and Zulu warriors who are around him. And they're saying we will spill blood if you come for our leader. And eventually the sort of surrender is negotiated and he goes into prison for contempt of court. But very soon afterwards, uh, a series of attacks on infrastructure, road blockade started. And was what we call, the, I guess, the July insurrection in KZN to an extent Gauteng. 
so, to so this, this is midway through last year that this happened. So uh, to understand South Africa's economy, Gauteng is the center of finance and mining, and South Africa's economy is very mining dependent. So traditionally, the mining wealth goes to Johannesburg and then comes to uh, the major port, which is Durban, which is KwaZulu-Natal, to be shipped across the world. And they basically shut down that network, attack the ports. And uh, at the same time, there seemed to be like an indication of, you know, like uh, setting, looting in motion, there was sort of mass participation, but there was also a targeted campaign led by rogue, uh, you know, elements of intelligence services and ANC leaders. We don't, it's again, the, it's all got fuzzy. So effectively, like to cut a long story short, there was a, you know, armed sabotage to a terroristic campaign, uh, as well as mass looting and rioting. Uh, over 300 people were killed. Again, most people don't really know how they were killed. There's a very much a lack of accountability, uh, at least, uh, you know, probably three, $4 billion, maybe more worth of economic done, like sabotage to the country's infrastructure, which probably won't be repaired. Uh, you know, um, you know, what is already a very dire situation made worse. Nobody's really held accountable. All these questions remain. Mm. And this was conducted by, I would argue, RET forces to protect Zuma and others from facing potential prosecution. And, you know, the net effect might be 100,000 jobs lost plus. And, you know, and this has happened. Uh, the people who led this are still in power and still in the ANC, including in Durban. And uh, the other thing I'll mention is to- just before just before that, I mean, because I wanted to kind of, you know, maybe yeah. try to clarify what is, you know, really a very messy picture um, in terms of, I mean, you know, materially a messy picture um, is the fact that you want to try to untangle what is political from what is non-political, from what is public interest to what is entirely private interest um, to what is ordered in a certain way and what is chaotic. And it's quite hard to do, right? Because I, I think you can like hearing all this and having read about it, like you can read this in various different ways, depending on your inclination, right? So you can see this sort of intra-ANC factional conflict as effectively political, but with lots of unruly edges and with some patronage and whatever at the sides of it. Or you can read it entirely the opposite way as just a question of private interest and power, um, which uh, adopts some political window dressing. So, um, you know, the RET being the window dressing for Zuma, um, supposedly having a radical face, whereas Ramaphosa presents a sort of mainstream centrist orderly face and maybe neither of them have that maybe it's all just kind of um a mess or yeah. and i guess and, and i guess the, you know you, even hearing this you, you most you might even be inclined to um sympathize to a certain extent with the ramaphosa faction say well at least they present you know i don't agree with their politics but at least they represent state authority and order against zuma um zuma's factions unruliness i don't know where do you stand on this what do you think is the right picture there's also another narrative which is a. Uh something that you didn't mention, which is people who swallow bullshit hook, line, and sinker and think this is like a spontaneous uprising of the poor, purebred riot. You know, but again, one has to ask if that was the case. South Africa has been this poor for a while. It has all these same problems. Why occur in a specific time and place? These special targets widen and spread across the rest of the country. Right, or, right. So this, so, this, so this is an idea that basically what happened in July 2021 was a, a kind of spontaneous bottom-up uprising, um, uh, which would then... Would, would, that, would that interpretation kind of favor the Zuma faction because they yeah, would see them commanding the, the kind of pe- the, the people against the elite? Well, I mean, at the very least of letting them off the hook for like mass terrorism, right. or sabotage, whatever you want to call it. 
And then there's the other thing is, and again, this is argued by elements of the South African left, including the Marxist left, which I think is completely delusional, is that effectively this whole uh, scare about corruption and RET is just a cover for neoliberalism and the privatization of the states and WMC, which right. again is the same thing RET is saying and people end up with that. There's also like the race reductionist narrative as well, which again is common among uh, parts of the university and elements of, you know, the sort of, you know, middle black middle class or, you know, elites is that effectively the whole thing is a distraction because the real power in South Africa is white power and the white ruling class hasn't been held accountable for apartheid. So all of these things, but what I would argue is effectively there's a bunch of things going on. So I would argue there's decentralized state authority in South Africa, which means there's lots of different local political factions competing over resources, which then channel in through various ways into articulating sort of national political things. There is competing, and they also are tied in other ways to what are national political patronage machines competing for power within the ANC. Now, um, to an extent, RET is um, more than just a set of buzzwords, which, I mean, following my mate Ryan Burnett, uh, I kind of believe, and I've come to the conclusion that RET also represents a legitimate desire for, uh, by elements of, uh, you know, the ANC elite political actors that uh, wish, I wouldn't say legitimate in terms of support, I'm just saying in terms of how, what they view it as a articulation, the fact is, the place of economic transformation, especially the uh, crowding out of, um, you know, basically the continued control of private sector, the command of industry by white South Africans is, uh, is continuing and this pace of change is not enough. So we need to take control of it. Again, this is something you've seen in other countries. But, and, uh, but that, would, that, that would be effectively black capitalism in the place of white capitalism. Yeah, yeah. again, it's, it's articulated in terms of like a popular nationalist. There's no distinction between mm-hmm. the working class. And again, that's something you'd notice quite a bit. And then I would argue even deeper um, to this is a sort of millenarial quality in the belief that, you know, there's sort of like an infinite pool of wealth, uh, exceptional about South Africa that you know can be accessed and we can start over again if we, even if there's clearly the things being are not being fixed so, so but, but but that's but at the same time there's no actual sort of developmental project to make use well, of those yeah. resources right I, well, I mean, there, there was but uh, we squandered it i mean like for instance we spent billions on upgrading our rail system and we ended up and again, the, the RT guys defied it but trains that were too tall for the tracks in south africa for instance <laughs> Right. Or like uh, billions on power stations, which are basically like not working or a port that really didn't serve any economic sense. And um, so that that money that we had, again, this is pushing back against some of the left narratives, which are preaching purely neoliberalism is a, at fault for our ills, is that the money was effectively squandered. Because we, so anyone who knows my work knows I've said in other contexts, anti-corruption is bunk, but I'll defend myself as I'm talking about corruption, is that there's different forms of corruption regimes. There's different forms of patronage regimes. Not all forms of corruption are conducive to development and some are not all uh, forms of corruption are not conducive to development. There is, a, as we say in Brazil, Obama's fish. He robs, but he gets something done. Which is a sort of classic machine where you steal 10%, but you make sure the project gets done and it sort of works even if it becomes a little bit later. In South Africa, we kind of like have more of like 90% disappears and the project never gets completed. Right. And this includes, you know, elements in like there's, Including a city which yeah, I used there, to live there's in. greasing there's greasing the wheels and then there's basically doing something such that the wheels become completely corrode yeah taking the wheel away entirely or corroding it which yeah is pretty much like you have like 
towns which have like no water supply in South Africa, for instance. Uh, yeah, and then the other couple of things I'll mention is, so in terms of opposition politics, we haven't really spoken of uh, much. The major opposition party in South Africa has been the Democratic Alliance, which controls uh, the Western Cape in Cape Town, which is this other city we haven't spoken about, which is different racial demographics to the rest of the country. It's like mixed race card majority in that region. Uh, it was growing during the Zuma period, but sort of hit a peak. And then a lot of voters went back to Ramaphosa and it sort of adopted more of a stance uh, of like a seen as a party of minorities, doubling down, like appealing to minorities, particularly white minority, uh, but also including uh, colored and Indian uh, minorities. But it's about 22% of the votes, but it is controlled within coalition governments of almost all the major cities in the country, except for, I, I don't even know what's happening in uh, Nelson Mandela Bay, which is Port Elizabeth, uh, it's kind of a mess there. Uh, it's hard to keep track. Uh, and Durban, which is under control of the RET faction of the ANC. So, you know, the economic capital, Schwane slash Pretoria, the economic center, Johannesburg and Cape Town, you know, the other major economic center are all under DA control. And uh, the next biggest party is the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, which describe themselves as, uh, you know, Fanonian socialist Marxist Leninists, but they're best viewed as a faction of the ANC in exile, stemming from uh, the former ANC Youth League. Uh, they and, um, and and their pol their politics do they have a real distinctive quality? I mean, they're more left wing, but they claim to be more left wing, but they are notorious flip floppers in every issue. I would describe them as effectively as part of the RET faction. They share the same sort of goals and interests, even if they claim to adopt a more radical stance. And I've seen like idiotic Americans like like why are you talking about the left? But like, if you knew the EFF and you know what they get up to. It's a bit hard, I mean, uh, to really take them seriously. I mean, like right. the, the, the leadership of the, of the EFF are implicated in numerous scandals, but one is called the VBS scandal. VBS was like a state support bank, vendor bank, which basically uh, was focusing on, uh, you know, Limpopo, which is the, one of the poorest provinces in South Africa. The pension, pensioners were, had their savings in VBS bank, which the EFF used to sort of loot. So it's like stealing from... Uh, poor pensioners right yeah, and then then you have the forces which have emerged uh as the anc continues to lose support there's numerous new parties but they tend to be ethno-nationalist or xenophobic in various forms right so so just i think i was reading about this there's the um act something what's it called a action action sa we have terrible names for our parties we have action SA. I, I, I quite like economic freedom fighters i think just as an aside i think that's quite a good name but uh um, they have like the red overalls and the berets yeah yeah and, and so and so who's like, who, what, who's it directed at right the, the xenophobia it's immigrants from everyone it's like a, like one of the few things south africans agree about is african foreigners as well as south asian foreigners are making things worse they're responsible for crime and corruption what, anyway, what so, do they? What do these immigrants generally do? Just to give a picture. So, uh, are they? You know, because I know there's a thing about truck drivers. That, truck they... drivers, yeah, truck drivers, corner store people who are at the bottom end of the economy. So it's people uh, yeah. at the very bottom end, but also you have you have South Asians who are recent immigrants who are shop owners, or are they that's yeah. more the established kind of Indian yeah, community yeah. in South Africa. Pakistani and Bangladeshi immigration waves and also Chinese immigration waves and uh, Somalian, but basically like imagine people who are competing in the same economic spaces, but so they're proximate and easy to blame. Uh, especially they get blamed for organized crime and drug trafficking against South Africans need no help with crime. 
but so uh yeah and then we have like smaller parties like the freedom front plus which is a africana nationalist party the atm which is like another ret splinter group the patriarchal front which is another big xenophobic party but is launched by uh you know ex-gangster turned uh businessman turned politician gaten mckenzie he was like a major boss in one of the biggest prison gangs in south africa I want to round this out and talking a little bit about kind of the you know decline of state authority and what happens um, in that context and maybe draw out some broader lessons. But just before that, um, I guess we should talk a little bit about toxic identity politics, because this is something that we haven't touched on directly, but it seems quite present. I mean, not just in terms of the xenophobia, which is obvious, but also in terms of Zulu nationalism and various other things. Um, the, the whole idea of black empowerment and black capitalism, which is a factor. So maybe just kind of tell us a little bit about this uh, and kind of maybe also how it relates to some of the kind of campus-based activism, because there was a famous roads must fall campaign. And how does all this stuff interlink? Well, I mean, it's, that's a very complicated question itself, but uh, I will start with some sort of other things about, you know, the RET fictional narrative, which gives a good indication. And again, it's something which is embraced by elements people would call them Marxists, people who call themselves like on the left, people, you know, campus activists, people who uh, claim to, you know, support intersectionality or whatever. But like, basically the idea is that WMC mobilized behind Ramaphosa to remove Zuma. And, uh, you know, there was, Basically, you know, that was the real issue. And again, this is all distraction from continued white ownership of the economy. Um, there was also, but this, the fact is, we know this, is the forces of, uh, you know, radical anti, uh, you know, systemic uh, RET include the Guptas, of course, which were notorious racists, anti-Black racists, uh, Bain, which is, uh, those I don't know, Mitt Romney's former company, Bain Capital yeah. from Boston. Uh, you know, um, uh, McKinsey and Company, the worst company in the world, McKinsey were involved in this. And again, you know, where you can find like massive uh, dodgy craft you could in uh, a developing nation, you can probably find McKinsey. Uh, you know, these are like, these are, I mean, other, you know, reasonably big international multinationals, which are very much honky white in, to- in pale skin, were making money out of this too. So it's hardly like, you know, some sort of anti systemic thing. Um, yeah, so then again, as I mentioned before, there was a working class uh, demand to move Zuma as well. So how would I say? I would say that, you know, South Africa as a country, uh, again, remains racially divided. And what happens is as you, you've lost any sort of national project of non-racialism or offering its sort of development project uh, after 94, um, various forms of uh, competing racial nationalisms and ethno-nationalisms emerge to fill that gap mm. as the alternatives. So as much as people like bang on about the rainbow nation being a neoliberal sellout, the alternatives are not necessarily better. better. So what emerged as a, uh, started on the fringes, pushed by elements of the black conscious movement, uh, some of them who literally ended up working as Gupta agents later, which mm. is a, a, a twisted, but it also gets embraced by a sets of, you know, more mainstream academic stuff and gets taken up to an extent by, you know, some of these movements that emerged in 2015, 2016, is that idea that 1994 changed nothing. It was like a sellout. There's no concrete difference between apartheid and whatever happened. Everything is, you know, the slogan was 1994 change fuck all, change fuck all. 
So that narrative, which again, sort of mixed with, uh, you know, things which we'd see in the United States, which is you know, something like Afro-pessimism or like this uh, sort of original sin narrative of American racism that nothing mm. ever got better after, you know, the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement uh, gets adopted as a justification, uh, in other words, for saying that we need more radical economic transformation or the real power is always going to be like white capital. Now, the South African ruling class, I would argue, has uh, is no longer, you know, WMC, but it's, you know, I would argue the biggest white capitalists to an extent are divested from South Africa. They spread the wealth other way. So they might live there, but, you know, their, their fortunes aren't tied to the South African economy in the same way that the new black elite is or the new emerging elite. Um, so this becomes a narrative of justification for, uh, you know, fighting these over control of elite spaces effectively, which you also see in the universities. And, you know, you see this, uh, so South Africa is a black majority country, you know, it's 84%, you know, African black to use the demographic category. So the spaces which aren't black are tend to be elite spaces. And there's an element of using minority, which, you know, arguments and forms of understanding uh, being a min press minority in a white majority country are being adopted to were translated into universities. But the main context consequence is, uh, I feel is like, and I don't think, you know, you can, even if I disagreed with some of the stuff, it's like necessary, like a deterministic narrative, is that there's sort of like this hodgepodge of different, uh, you know, international things being mixed with South Africa's older traditions, which have served as justification for fairly reactionary projects. And at the same time, it's not just in, you know, like the so-called wokes, you know, it's also like the fact is like the Africana right have been like, you know, sniffing uh, MAGA glue. They become, you know, like reading their Jordan Peterson, uh, mm. anti-vax stuff is fairly common in South Africa. So what you have is, you know, what I would argue in terms of, if you want to see, in, to take it to your question about the future, you know, you, I know you've written about the Brazilianization of the future. Um, South Africa is in many ways pretty similar to Brazil and it, it represents sort of vanguard of, of what's happening is that, um, you know, basically as the state fails to provide basic services, various forms of competing private interests, which are in very way antithetical to any mass political subject emerge, uh, adopting a hodgepodge of different things competing over the scraps. And this goes from like, you know, uh, vigilante movements to private security, to the bizarre spectacle of, you know, academics and intellectuals who made their name as, you know, like preaching Fanon or whatever, being hired by the Guptas to spread propaganda. So, mm. or like, you know, Bell Pottinger creating a driving racial tensions in South Africa. The other thing is within RET is a idea of a black majority, which is also hostile to, you know, colored and Indian. So, you know, funny enough, even though that Indian interests have been in terms of Indian businessmen been benefiting, not just the Guptas from some of the, the hijinks is that, you know, like there's very anti Indian and anti colored things. And also like racism against black people is also prevalent in all of these communities. So just a lack of a national project, decline in services, lack of a hope. And the extraordinary thing about this sort of degenerative project of RET or whatever you want to call it is how it's permeated almost every institution and led to conflicts uh, from the university system in which you have, uh, you know, somebody I know and respect, Sakela Balsungu, who is a vice, was a vice chancellor of uh, Fort Hare, um, you know, a noted sociologist of the trade union movement, 
and uh, one of South Africa's leading intellectuals being targeted for assassinations by his colleagues for trying to clean up the university. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, so you, you place most of the blame on, on kind of RET and, and sort of that uh, faction, but I guess it's... Yeah, it goes deeper. It goes the failure. RET is in some ways a symptom of a failure to, again, I don't want to go too structuralist to, um, you know, create a national project which grew the economy. And again, there's a sort of subjective factor, the Zoom factor. Uh, but like the failure to deal with South Africa's core social things, there's many other things feeding into. But like this is what happens when you don't have a national project of unity. Uh, mm. And then you know, give you another example of like this sort of degenerative of you know thing that creeps through the institutions. You have uh, you know the, like there's so many examples of just like farcical legal cases. But you mean you had an effective like brief period of state capture in the South African cricket team? Even I mean like <laughs> yeah, you, you have. So, so uh, I, just, I, I just wanted to kind of like in, in rounding this out, um, yeah. because you have, I mean, ultimately the, the, the big story is, is the decline of state authority, but also maybe even in a deeper sense, um, demodernization or in some ways the end of modernization, because it seems that in the absence of both state authority and a sort of universalist project, you know, for development, whether that might be a liberal one or a socialist one, um, you get the flourishing of all sorts of private and particular interests. So like literally private interests in terms of all the kind of mafia groups, but also particular interests in terms of um, the group, things grouped around different uh, ethnic identity interests. And yeah. that's really, that's really stark. I mean, that, that kind of is in some ways a little bit uh, the, you know, to come to come back to where we started, a real decline and crumbling um, versus the vision from 1994 and the Rainbow Nation. Even if that itself was a sort of um, a, a sort of a milk toast or sort of watered down version of earlier ideals of modernization, I think. Right. So if that one was a sort of more liberal. Um, you know, as you said, as you yourself said, the kind of rainbow nation idea was itself maybe a little bit um, unsatisfactory and the, the dreams of development then weren't perhaps that grand. Um, what you have today is, is definitely a decline relative to that. Again, you cannot maintain any sort of unified society or ability to have a, a collective interest in a, you know, 46% unemployment society. You know, that's like, you know, basically majority of the workforce is kind of not employed. That's not a sustainable situation. When you have uh, the sort of economic degrowth, the collapse of, you know, the core uh, developmental institutions, the state institutions, because, you know, like you can't really sustain economic growth if you don't have like a power. And when you have the decline of manufacturing, deindustrialization has also been a factor. There's basically scraps left over. And as the scraps become people competing over it. So, I mean, one of the most, and uh, again, these are tied into multinational uh, you know, organized crime everywhere. These are things that these things aren't like solely located. But I'll give you an example of, uh, you know, a very sort of dystopian one is that, um, you know, South Africa, the greatest gold deposits uh, ever discovered. There are armed gangs, which are linked to sort of international syndicates, fighting underground in uh, abandoned mines for like sort of artisanal illegal mining over the scraps of South Africa's mineral wealth. And, you know, with machine guns, people get killed fairly regularly in that. You know, that's the sort of image, you know, uh, different criminal groups fighting over the scraps of, you know, uh, the wealth that helped create the British empires, you know, fund the World War, uh, World War One. you know, this is like a very stark image. Then on the other side, you have um, sort of like 
simulacrum or like a simulation of like political disputes in which you have, uh, you know, like these sort of like coordinated protests against, you know, like some sort of a racist ad campaign by H&M where like the EFF go to like fucking malls and just trash these H&M shops and then get probably a payoff on the side. Or you have these disputes between like white bikers uh, and EFF members over in like small towns over like some sort of like incident of a alleged racist crime or something. Then you have like Afri Forum going on Tucker Carlson and, you know, the Africana rights organization and, you know, speaking and speaking of the oppression there, you have like all of these different things. But what you really don't have is, you know, one, uh, a clear project for restoring state capacity because, you know, my argument, and I think is something which we should take seriously uh, as those of us who still subscribe to socialist ideals or, you know, some sort of like collective project for hum human betterment and political change is that as radical as you want to sound, uh, you still want to inherit a state with capacity to do your project. So, you know, it's kind of like, and the second thing is, uh, is I often joke, you want to look what like fucking abolitionism looks like in practice, try calling the police in South Africa. <laughs> you know, what, what is, is uh, you know, again, private security is probably the biggest employer in South Africa, which is, you know, kind of depressing. Obviously, people can talk about white South Africans or rich South Africans living behind walls and only going to private spaces for ages. But now it's got something more is that you have, um, you know, uh, sort of vigilante xenophobic uh, social movements going around, uh, you know, fighting people. Uh, you have, um, uh, you know, communities self-arming as it happened in um during the July insurrection, which is in Phoenix, which is a working class Indian neighborhood next to a black neighborhood, which there was allegedly uh, a bunch of the local guys got guns and ended up shooting random bystanders uh, or people around Phoenix, uh, you know, just happened to be the wrong skin color. Uh, you have all of this and it's not a pretty sight. And you know, like people, and like, I find it kind of extraordinary. And this also goes to the media, like our largest daily newspaper chain got captured by RET forces basically. <laughs> Uh, so you don't even get, it's hard to get news. So you've got like a declining basis of information about what's even happening in most of the country. You have uh, an absence of political movements offering social change. And you have, you know, like this sort of like deep uh, sort of social despair and sort of apathy because, you know, in most countries when you don't have power and the middle class doesn't feel right, they go to the streets, not so much in South Africa. Then, um, and I'll just end with this and, you know, what happens is like you have social movements like Abashlali, Basman and Lolo, which is the largest social movement in South Africa, in Durban, the center of political violence in the country. I think they have had their 23rd activist murdered in the last you know, 10 years or so recently. But basically you have um, the state, you know, killing poor people. And again, it's not just poor people anymore because, you know, political sashes. Uh, you know, people who engage in very defensive struggles without mounting like a real challenge. So. There's this depressing situation in which, uh, you know, the collapse of the Leviathan, the central state authority, produces all of these different forms of micro conflicts, which take political forms, but already like anti-collective subject. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that and that this is, uh, you know, again, people talk about the you know, polarization of the United States or whatever. This is like a very stark view. And I think it's even more advanced than in Brazil, where you still have more state capacity. Yeah. You still have a, you know, a police force which might murder more people, but they certainly have the capacity to do things when they want to. And this is my last point, is you also have the fact is that the country is hostage to a political party, which is conducting, you know, like acts of sabotage against itself. 
Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's, that's really grim picture. And I guess at least the first task is to um, denude a lot of these um, forces from any sort of political pretensions, or at least from kind of their, their ideological window dressing. And I think you've done, uh, we've done that at least um, today. Um, anyway, well, that, that was, that was, um, that was grim. Um, hope to talk to you next time about something a little bit more pleasing, but cheers, Ben. Okay, and we're back. This is Alex uh, here with George and Phil. Guys, what were uh, your thoughts on that? It's pretty depressing. I mean, I guess the, the first thing to say, just about the kind of the, the concept of a mafia state. I mean, it's how we, we introduced it. This it's kind of a contradiction in terms of the, or, or at least according to some sociologists' uh, account of how the mafia arose, which is in the absence of the state, the mafia or Pepe is the person who because you can't rely on the state to secure contracts and things like that, you basically pay a proportion of any deal to to somebody who will um, beat you or your the person you're contracting with up if you don't honor the contract. So it's it kind of steps in for the absence of the state. I mean, this is this is the Sicilian mafia specifically because it's so far from the the central Italian or you know regional and then kind of national Italian state. So I just think it's interesting that the kind of the development of these ideas into the, the the state capture and the the plunder that's going on in, in South Africa that but Ben I details. I think that is consistent though as well because the whole point is like South African seem, you know, at least according to what Ben portrayed and as you say, a grim picture, um, it's disintegrating into a bunch of rackets, right? And that you do have like the various taxi mafias and local vigilante groups are kind of organizing on the basis of self-help to compensate for the lack of any public order or for collapsing public order yeah um so i, I guess mean, that would make sense i guess i guess probably what's what's needed to solve this situation in in the uk here we have keir starmer the head of the circus starmer the head of the labor party whose uh whose allies have styled him as mr rules so i mean if your allies call you that i mean what are your enemies going to call you but i mean it just made me think like that's that's the that's that's the problem i mean the the south african politics one lacks a kind of mr rules figure to Ben painted a you know a really a bleak picture of him not being able to wear crop tops and have rotisserie chickens um, during the lockdown and that's just like you know what 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 a sad life that would would have to be uh, to live without you without your crop top and your, yeah, your rotisserie think, chicken on a Friday. So I think maybe night. the end. I could you know I think perhaps no crop tops for Ben um, is probably a good thing. But that aside, I mean, yeah, it did. I mean, even at the time, I remember. I mean, South Africa's lockdown kind of. Um, you know, quickly had the reputation as being among the most absurd and extreme of many absurd and extreme policies associated with lockdown around the world. I mean, I suppose the thing, I mean, you know, it, I mean, certainly things that Ben said were corroborated by things that I've read about Africa and South African Facebook friends who post kind of updates about the, you know, the last, you know, kind of a nearby railway track where, which has been kind of um, stripped and raided, um, buildings being burned down, the collapse of kind of water supplies, power out, um, blackouts all the time. You know, so everything everything that I know about South Africa, independently of what Ben said, kind of, um, you know, corroborates what he said. And it's, I mean, it's almost like, I mean, I don't know, is apocalyptic too strong for what just seems to be a society that is, you know, kind of um, and the most advanced country in Africa. Um, that is just kind of uh, being shredded and being all of its kind of industrial capacity being vaporized. And so I guess the, 
what strikes me, I guess, thinking also about, you know, what you've written, Alex, is the two bricks, two of the bricks, at least, you know, of the kind of the that marketing slogan for investment from In the 2000s. Yeah. yeah, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, the BRICS. Um, you know, at least two of them, if not Russia too, which, you know, seems to be, you know, kind of a decaying empire. Um, at least two of them, Brazil and South Africa, just seem to be in full kind of stay, you know, just full kind of disintegration. And it's South Africa, remarkable. much more advanced, actually, than Brazil, you know, by the way that Ben Yeah, indeed, it. you know, so you should have written the piece saying the South Africanization of the world rather than the Brazilianization of the no, world. No, I think, I think there's still the opportunity to, to have some kind of middle-brow book crumbling bricks question mark and i'm then sure that's the been written of, actually i'm actually um, but but i think that not the wider, the wider because it will well what i was i mean to finish the point though about the bricks it was to say that the i mean you know it's remarkable basically that they got this kind of gimmick past all of us you know, like um, that it was taken as good coin, this kind of marketing slogan for emerging market investors, essentially became common currency and common parlance. And at least at least two, if not three of those kind of countries were storing up tremendous problems. And that now, you know, this is what they're left with. And I guess the big question for me, at least, is and maybe it's a parochial one, but I wonder how far South Africa really is. Um, you know, the mirror of the future, basically, for for all developed countries, um, total kind of disintegration and collapse. And, I, you know, I don't think all Western states will go in that direction, obviously not, or that they would reach kind of um, South Africa's kind of extreme nadir. But if um, perhaps if it's a direction of travel and that this is the results of decades of neoliberalism, essentially, that you just have this um, society that's evaporating into the ether. I think, yeah. I think Alex put it in an oh so gone. No, I mean obviously the the core capitalist countries are in a privileged position in, in in the ability to insulate themselves from some of these elements. Some of them are kind of self imposed, of course, um, and you know through neoliberalism. No, but, but I mean but, I'm thinking of like you know kind of decay of public infrastructure in the states. Absolutely, the absolutely, yeah. In the states, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the absolutely. Opioid debts and all of that, you know. But I think that the U.S., you could still say there's a political capacity for them. You know, there's enough. I don't want to say there's enough money because that would be a really dumb way to put it. But there are enough resources. No, there, yeah, they, sure. they, they hold, you know, they, they sit not, at the point of not apex of value way. chains and so on. That they that if there were the political will to do something, you could. In South Africa and in Brazil, and, and, it, and this goes even more so for weaker countries, you know, not so much the semi-periphery, but really the periphery, where the capacity is just no longer there because you can't industrialize, because you can't compete. Um, and so, you know, you're uh, left selling raw materials to kind of richer, more industrialized countries to process that. And it's difficult to, you know. It's more than that, though. I mean, there are plenty of countries, you know, that are weaker and poorer than South Africa or Brazil but don't suffer the kind of just the sheer levels of kind of um, inequality of uh, deprivation and of um, just sheer kind of criminality and uh, organized banditry. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, they are, you know, I mean, it is on an enormous scale and it is specific to a certain kind of um, middle income state. So I don't think it's just a, a question of, um, you know, whether or not they're, whether all developing countries are capable of industrializing or anything. It is, there are pathologies that are unique to these specific countries. And there's another I think element that's as well. Right. 
the, certainly Latin, sorry the just to add on to that but but yeah, you know yeah. a, a lot of latin america faces that level of criminality i mean mexico being a, a very obvious example but all through central america it's very much the case colombia traditionally has always been that as well where this level of state yeah. sovereignty is much less and uh, you know conflicts between uh, armed guerrilla groups and this and the kind of drug mafias so um it's more of a, a future of you know let's say the new world um and south africa in some ways uh it, would be included in that by you know being kind of a settler yeah. colonial country yeah and an additional and as, as i was going to say an additional element to all of this is that as you kind of pointed out Alex, that there's a there's the kind of the gen xer post-socialist hope in the 90s so it's not just like all of these things but it's it's a, a further fall um in, in one sense of like the, the hope yeah, having been there before like this, mm. like what, what, what could happen? And anything could happen. Think of all the possibilities. Oh well, actually, shit. I mean, it's I yeah. Think it's kind I mean, of, I th- this breakdown yeah. is is. I think you fall. you both kind of I think you perhaps underplayed that. I mean, I think you know the failure of the Rainbow Nation, Mandela. You know, doing the long trek and kind of casting his vote and leaving Robin I. You know, the kind of the choreographed um, departure from prison. I mean, it was like it really was kind of. Um, the moment for the left so even if they kind of um you know they were kind of even for the anti-stalinist left or the socialists who kind of were mournful for the end of the soviet bloc they could at least hold out their hopes in um, the rainbow nation right and the end of apartheid that was something for them at the end of history so the fact that that's failed i think is really is really important um and on top of that also it's a failure of the left i think and it's um but comes with such bizarre um you know bizarre aspects to it so this weird kind of the point that ben was making about the bell pottinger kind of pr firm and just how implicated it has been in south african politics yeah um it's this weird kind of mashup between thatcherism and stalinism in the case of the anc kind of bell pottinger alliance you know so all sorts of oddities cropping up in this um, tremendously kind of uh, messy and corrupt system. Okay. Um, On that cheerful note, we'll leave this here. Um, It would be good actually to talk about some other countries in in this sort of light. Um, What happens when, you know, development is kind of out of reach um, and different kind of political and institutional responses to that. Um, So, you know, if if you think we're missing out talking about a a country that, you know, we've definitely overlooked, Give us a shout. Let us know. Uh, let us know what you have thought of this. Uh, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will be back in a week, as we always are. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>